Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We will be looking at the first six verses of Ephesians 4. Now, for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been teaching us the wonderful message of the gospel. He's been revealing to us God's great plan for the church and God's great plan really for all history. He's been praying multiple times that we would grow in our knowledge of God's plan, of God's love. Now in chapter 4, Paul begins to apply all this truth that has been building up for three chapters. God has chosen us that we might be holy, it said in chapter 1. Well, what does that look like? God has created us in Christ Jesus, it says in Ephesians 2, for good works that we might walk in them. What are those good works? How do we walk in them? What does that Christian walk look like? We also see that God has a great cost while we were yet sinners, raised us from the dead with Christ and saved us. But what does that look like in practice? How shall we respond? What does our Lord and Master call us to do in response to this great love? That is what Paul begins to focus on this morning. Let me pray before I read. Lord, we ask that you would write these words on our heart, that you would change us, that you would convict us, that you would help us to rejoice in your plan. Work in us, Lord, the thing that you want to accomplish with this scripture today. Let it not return to you without accomplishing that work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Now, Paul begins this word, this section, with this word, therefore. So, all of what we're about to see all this application is based on the first three chapters, which only had one command in the first three chapters. You remember what it was? It was to remember. Remember what you were when God called you. Remember what you were without Christ. You were far off. Remember that you were dead. And God made you alive. And God has brought these Gentiles in Ephesus together with his church, made us one church 
with the Israelites, his people. And now he has got this plan coming from it to unite everything in Christ. Now, all from this gospel, this plan, comes the application. What we will find if we look for, look as that the first three chapters is that this therefore is based on God's gracious work and God's wonderful plan, these two things. The first three chapters you see are all about God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's sacrifice for us and plan for us. Ephesians 1 through 3 is about what God has done for our salvation. Ephesians 4 through 6 is what we as saved people should do. Brothers and sisters, I remind you again, it is crucial that you always remember this order. The Apostle John summed it all up for us in one simple sentence. We love because he first loved us. Now, the, the works that God has called us to cannot earn Christ's love. Put that completely out of your mind. You cannot earn God's love. God loved us when we were yet sinners. God did not drop off the Ten Commandments in Egypt and say, once you keep this well enough, I will rescue you. No, he rescued his people, some of whom were worshiping Egyptian idols at the time, and brought them out and then gave them the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So you ought to remember that the law is given to us. These applications are given to us, not so that you may be saved, but in response to salvation. But I also want to remind you, in Ephesians, one of the most famous verses, famous sections is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God saved you. For by grace you have been saved. But don't end the book of Ephesians there. The gospel is so important, but it is not the end. It is the means to the end. God has called us to fellowship with him, to love him. It's not possible without the gospel, but it's more than just you're saved by grace. You're saved for something. And if I might go back to the book of Exodus, you see how most of the book of Exodus is not about coming out of Egypt. If it was, the whole book could have ended at chapter 12, but it goes on all the way to chapter 40. It brings them into God's presence. They learn God's law. They set up God's tabernacle, and God comes and dwells with them. This is God's plan, that you saved by the gospel might dwell with God, that he might change you, that he might make you the way he wants us to be, that he might fill us. And, and that's what we see at the end of the Bible, that the dwelling of God has come down among men. That, that is where the gospel is leading to. And so God has this wonderful plan for this church that does not end with you being saved by grace from your sins, and then you wander around aimlessly trying to figure out what God has saved us for, 
Or what do I do now? God has a plan for you. And sometimes it's hard for us to focus on this plan. We're so focused on getting him a promotion or, or whatever is coming up, graduating, you know, going to college, getting a job, getting married, just getting through the first few years of having little babies. God has a plan that's much higher than that, much greater than that. And he wants us to, to have our, our plans conform to his, this majestic eternal plan that he's had since before the beginning of the world that will go on forever and ever. He wants us to raise our minds higher. Now we see in this passage that God has a plan for us. Really, if I were to, if I were to summarize the whole book of Ephesians in one verse, it wouldn't be, for by grace you have been saved. It would be Ephesians 1.10, that God's plan was to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. The center of God's whole plan in our salvation, and indeed of all history, of all creation, is to make Jesus Christ first in all things, that in all things he might have the preeminence to unite to everything together in Christ. That's the great plan behind God's gracious work. We were rebellious and dead and far from Christ. God's plan reversed that. It raises us from the dead with Christ. It brings us near to God and reconciles us to him. At the very same time, we are also reconciled to one another. And we see here that we are not saved, you were not saved to be merely a saved individual. No, Christ is building us into something, into, in some places, a temple. And every believer is a stone. And he's making us together, not just a pile of rocks, but building us up into his home a place where he is worshipped, a place where he dwells. He is also uniting us into one body, and we're like body parts. And it says later on in this chapter that he wants us to grow in maturity to a mature man, not to mature men, to a mature man, the head being Christ and the body being the church. So we are, we are here called to, to, you, to catch on to this vision of unity. Uh, Ephesians is more than any other letter I can think of, the epistle of unity. Unity with Christ. That is God's plan. And so since that is God's plan, it's quite easy to see why the first thing Paul focuses on in the application section is unity with one another. This is what God wants. His, his application flows from this uniting work. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What are Christians to do? We are to 
have a worthy walk. Again, not worthy to be saved, but a, a walk that fits with our salvation. We are to live in a way that fits with that holy calling, a way that fits with God's plan, that fits as a child of God should, should live. Often in Scripture, our, our lifestyle is called our walk. You remember, even as far as back as Enoch, that he walked with God. Abraham walked with God. And earlier in Ephesians 2, Paul said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. But God saves us from that walk and leads us to another one, Ephesians 2.10. He gives us a new path to walk. It says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has taken us from one lifestyle, prepared for us another lifestyle. That's the walk. You're saved for this walk. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You have been saved. Therefore, live as a saved person. Be who you are is essentially Paul's application. That's the walk. So Paul is saying in this passage this morning, God has saved you, dear brothers and sisters. Therefore, don't continue walking around in the way of sin and death. You have been rescued from prison, as it were. Don't go around walking anymore in an orange jumpsuit or the black and white stripes, whatever they wear these days. You have a new lifestyle to live, one that does not lead to death. Walk the way a saved child, dearly loved by God, should walk. That's verse 1. But what does that look like? How should we walk? And that is what Paul will, will, will explain in this first chapter. And just to give you a big picture of the chapter, you, you know the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Just think of those first two words, one holy. The first half of this, this chapter is that the church would be one. The second half is that the church would be holy. That every Christian in the first half would be your friend. And that every sin in the second half would be your enemy. That's what a, a Christian is. Someone, every Christian should be your friend. Every sin should be your enemy. That's part of the walk that he's called us to. One holy. So right now we're focusing on unity. So this is God's plan to unite us all together in Christ. So the application is all about this unity. He, and for that, he urges us to live in a way that maintains the unity that the Spirit has created. So you, if you look at verses 2 and 3, here we have two pairs of characteristics of a believer's walk, which are all designed to preserve this unity. First, humility and gentleness. And second, patience and loving forbearance. If you imagine if I just said the opposites of these words, how there could be no unity. 
You know, if everyone was proud, if everyone here in this room wanted to be the best and thought that you were the best, you are the best, and everyone was not gentle, uh, but rough with one another, impatient, not forgiving sins, how we would just completely, it would be chaos. For there to be unity, there must be these characteristics in us. Humility is the beginning of unity. The more low-minded we are, the more like-minded we can be. So these, these things that Paul is pressing upon us are not so much outward things. They're more inward character traits that, that a Christian should have for there to be unity. Notice, brothers and sisters, that Paul does not begin with these outward deeds like fasting, giving to the poor, but he begins at your heart. The heart is the main thing. And if you do not give God your heart, nothing else really matters. God looks on our hearts. He wants to change us from the the innermost part of your being. And out from your heart flows everything else. So he begins at the center, our character. This is where true unity must begin with the Holy Spirit strengthening our hearts in, in love, rooting and grounding us in love that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. So the first characteristic that God calls us to is humility. That would seem strange to the most Ephesians probably, strange to the Greeks. They never spoke of humility in a positive way. They despised it. They looked down on it as something fitting only of slaves. But amazingly, God is impressed with, with humility. He is not impressed with our strength, with our, our great intelligence. He is impressed with our lowliness. He said, to this one I will look, to him who is lowly of heart. He is opposed to the proud. And this ought to strike fear in every one of us who is proud. You do not want God to be opposed to you. It's a fight you will not win. But he loves the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So the word Paul uses here means this lowliness of mind. It's the same word he uses in Philippians 2, 3, um, where, where he calls us to have our minds like Christ. Now, this might be a bit different from the way we use it. We think we're exercising humility when we don't post everything good about us on Instagram. We think that we are being humble when we don't tell everybody how awesome we are. Perhaps we think that we exercise humility by how we respond to a compliment. You know, somebody will say, well, that was great. And you say, no, no, it was terrible. It was really awful. But on the inside, what we're thinking of, yes, it was good. And I hope you also notice how humble I am. <laughs> but humility is not an absence of bragging. It's a pretend humility. It's a, an inward characteristic 
uh, humility when no one else is around. It's, it's this low view of ourselves, looking at the cross, knowing in your heart, that's what I deserve. And even looking at your gifts and said, I didn't earn any of these. Everything I have was given to me. And God has given you gifts. You don't have to deny it to be humble. He's given each, each of his dear children gifts to serve one another. But there were gifts. They didn't come from you. They came from him. And recognizing that, that is, is humility. That's part of that humility. It's an accurately low view of yourselves and our unworthiness. Knowing that everything good in me is from a gift of God leads to this humility. It's when we see God for what he is and we see what we really are for the first time, how low we really are. If you compare yourself to one another, that's not the way to humility. Your neighbor around you is not the standard. Compare yourself to Christ, there's no way for you to be proud anymore. He is the standard. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this humility before God. That's the beginning of our walk, of our unity. Jesus began the Beatitudes with this characteristic as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said this, blessed are the meek. It's really the first two things that Paul mentions here, isn't it? Humility and gentleness. In, this, in the church, this is seen by not trying to exalt ourselves over our brethren, not seeking your own glory, but seeking God's glory and the edification of your brethren. God has called you to walk in humility. It may be that this will involve you praying to God to actually give you a humble heart because pride is, it can, it can attend us, attack us in the most unpredictable places. Even as we approach the throne of grace, we, can, might, we might say, I pray better than someone else. Or I just prayed for five minutes today. I'm very good. Yeah. God God has to work deep in our hearts to root pride out. It is the first sin to arrive in, in, the, in this planet. It seems like it'll be the last one to go. The second characteristic of a worthy walk is gentleness. And this is connected to humility. While humility is inward, gentleness is more outward. And don't imagine this to be weakness. I like the way John Stott puts it, he says, it's the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. That's what meekness is. The gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. And in Scripture, it is particularly required of those in authority. It is seen in mercy to the weak and the needy. It is seen in the way we treat those who are new in the faith with a special patience and kindness most of all, it is seen in the way the Lord Jesus treated you, isn't it? The way he treated us. He said, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus describes himself with these attributes. This is his characteristic. He is gentle and lowly of heart. And if he is lowly of heart, how can we be proudful? He says, you will find rest for your souls. Gentle and humble in heart. That's the same attributes that Paul calls us to in these verses. It's Christ's image being impressed on Christ's people. Humility and gentleness. We see it when our Lord and Master, knowing the Father had given all things into his hand, took up the basin and the the towel and he washed the feet of his disciples. That's the gentleness of the strong. There's no one stronger than Jesus. No one gentler. We see it in the way that he had time for sinners, time for children. He was with people that nobody else would be with because they thought those people were too lowly. He was with lepers, tax collectors, fishermen, He called them to himself to find rest. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't extinguish the dimly burning wick. He is especially gentle with the weakest, the lowliest, the neediest. Isaiah 40.10 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And then the next verse says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is the gentleness of the strong. And these characteristics naturally flow into the next pair, patience and loving forbearance. For you see, when we are humble, when we recognize our own lowliness, our own mistakes, our own unworthiness, our own need, will we not also be patient with others? How unreasonable is it for God to forgive us an enormous debt and then we turn and throw someone else in jail in the parable who owed us a little bit. This this lowliness, this sense of God saved me, this is the way Paul felt. God saved me, the, the weakest of all, the worst sinner, to display his perfect patience so that I would also recognize that there's nobody, nobody out there who's beyond his reach. Now, God, God calls us to this same patience. All around us, all around you, brothers and sisters, There are other brothers and sisters who are still growing, still struggling in sin. You will annoy them. They will annoy you. They're just like us, just like you. And this sin, their sin, your sin, has a way of tearing us apart. But God has brought us together. And what God has brought together, let no one separate. 
So if we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit, as the Spirit has created in the church, we must be patient and forgiving. If you cannot learn to forgive, you will end up having no relationships at all with anyone. The person that you get along with the most in this life, if you live with them, eventually you will hurt them and they will hurt you because you're not perfect and they're not perfect. And if there's no forgiveness, no relationships will remain. God has called us then to be patient with others, to be forbearing. So if we are to preserve this unity, we must have these characteristics. It's true in marriage. It's true in all your friendships. And this patience and forbearance is rooted and grounded in love. For love, you see, covers a multitude of sins. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not seek its own. It keeps no record of wrongs done. It bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And thank God it never fails. Isn't that precisely the same love with which Christ has loved us? It is. If you look back at Ephesians 1 through 3, and think about this. Isn't that the way God has loved us? Has he not been patient with us? Has he not shown us kindness and gentleness when we were rebels? Has he kept a record of wrongs that we did? No. He is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He has wiped our record clean with his own blood. Jesus Christ is the great peacemaker. And he is changing you into his image. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? The children of God. God is making us like that. And brothers and sisters, can you imagine a church where every member was just like Jesus? Wouldn't that be heaven on earth? And yet that is precisely God's plan for this church, for all his churches, to make us just like Jesus. Of course, that would be impossible on our own strength, but the good news is we're not on our own. Jesus dwells in the church. Paul just prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. And everything you need, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is there in him who dwells in you. Everything needed for the complete happiness and perfection of the church is there in him. It won't be perfect in this life. It will be perfect one day. And nothing will stop him from doing that, from making that happen. That is reason to rejoice. But oh, even now, brothers and sisters, that you would come to him, that you would take his yoke upon you, and learn of him, for he is humble and gentle. And there, brothers and sisters, there you will find rest for your souls. The very Holy Spirit who created this unity is the same spirit 
who produces all these very characteristics of a worthy walk. It's his work in you. It's his fruit, isn't it? You might remember love, peace, patience, gentleness. Are those not the fruit of the Spirit? So at every point where we feel we lack these things, we must go to the only place where they may be found and obtained. If you see this and you say, I have a long way to go, let it lead you also, like Paul, to prayer, to go get these things that have been laid up for you. You might not be a naturally patient person. God's will is that you're just as patient as Jesus one day. And he's there. And the Spirit wants this for you. So you must go to him. Ask, and you shall receive. Keep asking. So we must, like Paul, bow our knees and pray that God would produce all these fruits in us. I'm quite sure that the church that most prays for one another will also be the church that's most clearly united with one another. So let us pray for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters around us for these things that especially promote unity, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And do not be discouraged. You will be more than a conqueror through him who loved you. But let me push this a little bit more for you to reflect on. God's purpose is for unity in this church, in Christ. What is it in your life that is preventing unity, that is a hindrance to it? Oftentimes in churches, there will be gossip about one another. Everyone loves to complain Maybe you've been hurt in the past, and you hold a grudge. And when you're around this person, you don't feel like fellowshipping with them. And you want to just keep your distance. Maybe there's someone in here that you just don't know anything about. Invite them out to lunch. You know, start learning to live together. You know, sharing life together. And work on those things that will promote unity. Be a peacemaker. Be the one to initiate that peacemaking if it's needed. Don't hold grudges. Don't gossip. Do ever, like, we, we should want it that you desire that everybody around you loves everybody around you. So if you speak badly of someone else, it has a way of making them not love that person. But go out of your way to speak highly of everyone in this room. That we might grow closer together. That we might all think more highly of one another than we think of ourselves. We have, every church has a lot of room to work in this area. A lot of room for growth. But this is God's plan. And so it will happen. So Let us keep praying for that, for this unity and for these characteristics of those who promote unity. Now, Paul concludes this exhortation to unity by reminding us that we are indeed one. And there is really no way to miss this emphasis, is there? 
Look how many times in verses four through six, God, Paul uses this word one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who was over all and through all and in all. Seven times. Three of those refer to God himself, one spirit, one Lord, one Father. For all unity flows from him. For God is one. That is what they called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, his people must be one. How, is, how could it be that if we are his body and Christ is one, we could be divided, fighting against each other? It would be Christ's body fighting itself. It would be trying to tear Christ to pieces. So this unity flows from God as people are therefore to be one. So why should we, why should we be diligent to preserve this unity and the bond of peace? It's because of these things right here. There is one body. How can it be divided? We all have the same Holy Spirit. Could he be at war with himself? No. We all have the same hope. We serve the same Lord. We have the same faith. We've received the same baptism, a sign and a seal of our union with God and of our membership with one another. We have the same Father. That means we're an unbreakable family. Look around you. All these things are true for every believer. Consider that, brothers and sisters. Don't just hope for it, though. Pursue it. Pursue peace with all men. Be eager. This is, speaks of this activeness. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Consider it the next time that you get annoyed or are offended with one another. God has brought you together. God has adopted us into one family. You know, I think it's amazing. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus in John 17. And he prayed for us that we would all be one, even as God is one. Should we then fight with one another? Should we hold grudges with one another? Should we refuse to forgive one another? Shall we tear apart the body of Christ? God forbid. This is precisely what Satan would love to see. Should he have the victory? No. What are we to do then? Let us walk in that wonderful path which the Lord has called us to walk. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Be gentle and patient and loving with one another. And let us be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is his commandment, that you love one another just as he has loved you. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would increase this unity in the church, that you would bind us closer and closer to our Lord Jesus Christ, that he might have preeminence in all things, that we might be all held under his sway, under his reign. And we pray that you would help us to preserve this unity and the bond of peace, that all things might be united in, in Christ, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray.
Amen.